Welcome this morning. I sent you all a letter out and I hope you got it. It looks like it because we've got a, a really good attendance this week. I've worked hard to cram our lesson on Muhammad and Islam into one Sunday because I'm so concerned about how slow this is going. I've been told that church history is being made quicker than we're reporting on it. <laughs> so net net we're falling behind. Um, it is my sincere hope. We're hitting the Middle Ages here and and not a lot happens in the Middle Ages, so I'm going to accelerate in the interest of church history literacy as opposed to uh, church history uh, graduate studies. And we will zip a little bit through the Middle Ages. We've still got uh, some wonderful things coming that I wanted to tell you about. But first I need to warn you, I can't get Muhammad and Islam in with fairness in one Sunday. So it is going to be a two-part lesson. What you have in front of you is part one, and then part two next week will be where we actually compare the doctrines and teachings of Muhammad and Islam with those of Christianity. Because what we're going to see is tension that lasts between these communities. It ebbs and, and flows, and it's between different parts of the communities. It's not a, a permanent tension, if you will. But the, the tension we will see continue for uh, the next 1,500 years. It's what we need to know to understand the Crusades. It's what we need to understand the overthrow of, of the, what is left of the Roman Empire, etc. So, um, what, what are we doing? We're doing hand motions. It looks like... From wide to little, go left. Oh, we're out of lessons. I'm sorry. Um, uh, it, uh, Castell took six of them. He's holding up a few extra. He he sells these. And uh, if you if you've got room to to move toward the center, that would be helpful. If more people come in, also don't hesitate. We've got a few seats down here in the front. Uh, uh, so um, raise your hand if you'd like a lesson. We'll try to bring more next week. Next week's lessons, I will tell you this. I was asked, <clears throat> and in fairness, I should have put a bibliography with the lesson this week. I did not do that. Um, I was asked uh, by uh, uh, one of the, the readers of my lesson, uh, my son, uh, uh, what I was using for my source materials this week. And one of the difficulties when you teach the life of Muhammad is we don't have original source material from contemporaries. And by that I mean we don't have uh, written down what other people thought about Muhammad and what other people who knew him had to say. We're relying upon materials that were written after Muhammad was dead uh, up to one, two, three hundred years later. And uh, uh, whenever you rely upon that kind of material, you're reading people, and I don't want to suggest that they're dishonest by any means, that's not my suggestion, but anybody who writes afterwards, a historian will tell you, is going to write with the glasses that they see history. And, and you know, you, 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 so we've got to understand some of that. But we've got plenty of good data to understand what we're about today. And certainly next week, a lot of the material that I've put together comes actually from Muslim authors. Uh, because I want to try and do justice and fairness to the faith of, of Islam uh, for what they stand for. Um, I do look forward to next week in contrasting some of the core tenets of the Muslim faith with the Christian faith because anybody here ever grow plants from seeds? A lot of you. Have you ever noticed how you can plant two different kinds of seeds that are radically different and when they first sprout, they look the same and you can't always tell which is which? But given time, one grows into a massive tree while the other grows into petunias or something? Okay. It's the same way with the Muslim faith and Christianity. If you just look at it very superficially, they seem to have a lot in common. But a very careful examination and a little bit of time to, to unfold what both stand for show them to be vastly different in what they teach. And so uh, 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 I look forward to next week and urge you to try to come. But now we've got a lot to cover this week, so fasten your seatbelts, put up your tray tables, we're going to take off. Um, Muhammad and Islam. Uh, this is the globe. Uh, it's only half of it, technically. Uh, there's another half that we don't get to see, but you all knew that. Uh, uh, on the globe, you've got a bunch of people. Six and a half billion, okay? So all of those, those are the six, and that guy up there is the half. Um, <clears throat> there are six and a half billion people on the planet. And depending upon who you 
uh, 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 agree with, uh, there's somewhere between 1.1 to 1.7 or so billion that are Muslim. Uh, that means basically one out of every four to one out of every six people. Now think about what that means. That means in this class, starting there, going all the way back to about right here, that entire corner, if we were, this class were to represent the world, would be Muslim. That's a lot. Um, Dr. Bob's not here this morning. He had suggested that I tell everybody how many people in here are Muslim, and then when I have everybody raises their hand or doesn't, say, oh, wow, the whole back five rows. And then when all of y'all turn around, I was supposed to say, made you look. Um, <laughs> but I decided not to do that. I do believe that we've got some Muslim guests here this morning, and to you, I want to say, welcome. Uh, you will hear, uh, uh, hopefully this morning, a good historical and fair representation of your faith. Uh, uh, and I invite you especially to come back next week and hear, uh, uh, as we compare the, the basics of the Muslim faith to the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, I invite you to come back for two reasons. First of all, to hold me accountable and make sure I do fairness to your faith. And then second of all, uh, uh, to listen to the faith that we share here uh, so that you can better understand the one out of every four people in the globe who call themselves Christians. So uh, um, with that, let me ask you some questions. Have you ever wondered why it is that uh, Muslims believe what they believe and why there are so many different Muslims and so many different beliefs? You know, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, is a gentleman, is one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's very kind. He and Becky and I worked together on a fundraiser to, to generate money for wheelchairs for the people in Bosnia who had been affected by all of the war, uh, savages of war uh, over there. A nice, peace-loving Muslim man. And so you've got a guy like Hakeem Olajuwon, who's very peace-loving, very peace-loving, and yet in the same faith you've got Osama bin Laden, who, who vociferously and loudly proclaims his, his uh, desires to see America and Western civilization brought to its knees. You know, how can you have someone who loves peace and someone who loves war in the same faith? Or have you ever wondered why within the Muslim faith there's tension even within it? Right now, Saddam Hussein is on trial. He's been on trial for some time. But one of the things he's on trial for is whether or not he's behind the slaughter of 150 Shiite Muslim men. So here's the question of why would this man who is a, a, a Muslim be out basically wiping out entire scores and scores of Muslims that are of a different... What is the difference between a Sunni Muslim and a Shiite Muslim? Why would they be fighting? Why would they have this animosity towards each other? These are some of the questions that actually have their answers in the very genesis or beginning of the Muslim faith. And so this week, what our goal is, is to talk basically about the life of Muhammad. But to do that, we have to first talk about what the world was like that Muhammad was born into. And then also what the world was like right after Muhammad. That's our goal for today. If we accomplish that, we're in good shape. Y'all come on down. There are seats somewhere. Make yourselves at home. You're, ah, there you go. Next week, we will, as I said, compare the details of the Islamic, Islamic faith to that of Christianity. Um, so with that said, our introduction's out of the way. Point number one today, if you keep an outline of a speech, let's talk about the world that Muhammad came into. Um, um, I got out my uh, kids' crayons. Don't laugh, I really did. This is, uh, whoops, I got a little carried away. This is uh, turquoise blue, I thought, because, you know, that's uh, Sienna. I used on that one. We've got, this is a modern uh, uh, view of the world that we need to talk about today. We've got Africa there, just in case my drawing doesn't make any sense to you, I've labeled it. Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Y'all with me so far? All right. Now, the Roman Empire is what we've been studying because that was the power force when the church came into existence. So I've added the Roman Empire into this, and at its peak, uh, that kind of maroonish color was the Roman Empire. We have seen over the duration of this class the Roman Empire divide in half, 
Then we've seen it kind of crumble and the western half is gone. But before we get there, I want to ask you this perplexing historical question. Why is the Roman Empire only the area we see here? Why isn't the Roman Empire up above? Why didn't it expand down below and off to the east? Well, up above, there is a river that borders the, the Roman Empire at that time. And there are forests, the Black Forest of Germany, for example, that were very dense, that made it very difficult for Rome to go further and to conquer. So Rome set up its borders at that river. But that still raises the question, why does not Rome ever conquer Africa and come down here? Why doesn't Rome conquer the Arabian Peninsula, what is now Saudi Arabia? Anybody want to guess? Yeah. That's just not where you want to go conquer. Okay, it's not, these are not people that had big cities by and large and big civilizations. These are nomads. They have tents and caravans. They might move from an oasis to another oasis, but basically they're going around trying to see where they can graze their sheep. So they have camels and they have... You don't go conquer that as Roman legions. You wouldn't have enough water to make it from one oasis to the other with your entire battalion going like this when they got camels and they maraud. And what are you doing anyway? You're conquering desert and you want to add desert to your territory. That's just a headache. So that's why we see the natural Roman boundaries that we see and, and you don't see Rome encroaching down here. Now, the kind of people that lived, especially in the Arabian Peninsula, over in this part of the desert, there's really not much of anything, but in the Arabian Peninsula, you actually have a lot of people. And these are people that are called, uh, by uh, folks today even, Semitic. Oh, time out, I left this out. See that, Medina and Mecca? there were a few big cities that were further down, kind of insulated by desert and scrublands from where the Romans were. But I don't want to leave the impression that there weren't any cities. There were a couple. Um, now, having said that, the people who inhabit this are Semitic people. Semitic. You heard the word before? Maybe you've heard people who, uh, uh, like the Nazis and people who hate the Jewish people, are called anti-Semitic people. Okay, same idea. Semitic people. Where does that come from? Anybody have a clue? Shem. Shem was one of Noah's three sons. And in the, the Semitic languages, like Hebrew, there's no difference between really an S and an SH. They're the same basic letter. They're just pronounced sometimes S and sometimes SH. So from Shem, you get the Shemitic or the Semitic people. Now, do they actually descend from Shem? That's what uh, anthropologists have thought, and that's why they call them Semitic people. But Semitic people are very different from the people that have civilized the Roman uh, Empire. They're not, the Roman Empire people are not considered Semitic like the nomads are. Semitic people have a very different culture. They have a very different language. They break off uh, uh, from so far back, it's either Noah or something close. Because they have developed an alphabet, for example, this is Arabic, an alphabet where you write right to left instead of left to right. You pronounce things differently. You don't have the same basic root words. You don't have, if you study Greek, you'll find so many words in the Greek language or the Latin language that sound like ours. Um, anthropos is man, like anthropology in Greek. Okay, But you go to Hebrew and you don't have anything to remember it by if you're trying to study the language because it's so vastly different. Our language doesn't come from the Semitic cultures. Our food doesn't come from the Semitic cultures. You go over and eat Semitic food, you've got pita bread and hummus. I mean, it's wonderful. I like it. You've got falafel. You've got a whole different food. You've got different culture. You've got different uh, everything. And, and so you've got to keep that in mind as we do this lesson. The other thing you've got to keep in mind as we do this lesson is the nomadic people themselves produced a different culture. When you're a nomad and you go from town to town, you basically live within yourself. 
You don't set up trades. You don't have a blacksmith. You don't have a scribe. You don't have a, a, a steady priest. You don't have a... You, 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 you are a totally enclosed community that just moves, has a nomadic lifestyle. And it's happened not once, but generation after generation so far back that you're very tied in with your family. And the family is the key. Um, uh, in the nomadic cultures that Muhammad was born into, you basically have one tent per family. A big tent. I mean, this is not like the, gee, let's set it up for uh, Scout-O-Rama. Okay? This is the big tent. And the family lives, and it's got rooms inside it in a essence, but the family lives in the big tent. Now, a collection of tents that move around together are a clan. You with me? Some of this is kind of foreign to us. This is not our culture. So you just got to get some of these words down for this to make sense. The clans that are all kind of loosely affiliated, you got a family here, you got a family there. The families that are related are in a clan. The clans that are related belong to a tribe. All right, I'm going to throw these back up here. First, I want to throw in just a freebie. Do you know what the Arabic word for elder is? No, probably not. Sheikh. Or in English, we write it this way. Sheikh. And, and so we've got some familiarity with some of these terms, but that's who was uh, the elder within the clan itself. Now, I put it back up on the chart in this way. You've got a tribe, and the tribe will have different clans. The clans being a looser affiliation of the families. And under each clan, you've got a family. And that's the way their society was set up that Muhammad's born into. So with that, we've got the background knowledge we need. Now let's study Muhammad. All of these different tribes, and within the tribes, the clans would often worship different gods in the nomadic area. Okay? There were, uh, at one point in time, 360 gods and goddesses, deities, that were being worshipped as Muhammad is born into the world. And one of the places where a lot of the nomads would come together to, to do their worship beyond just where they are in the desert at the time was in Mecca, down here at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. And within Mecca, in the center of Mecca, was something called the Kaaba. It's worth saying, Kaaba, Kaaba, okay? The Kaaba. Now this is a picture of the Kaaba today. It is that big square box. It's about 50 feet high. It's a cube, about 50 feet. It's got one door. You can go in it. The door's about six foot off the ground. And within it today are, are several items I've read. I've never been there. Um, but one of the items that's of the greatest and most holy origin, supposedly, is a stone, a black stone. And no one knows exactly where this black stone came from. But the Kaaba had already been built around the stone at the time Muhammad was born, and the stone had already been there, and the Kaaba had been there, and you have 360 deities all set up around the Kaaba. And Mecca as a town itself is being run by what I'm going to call the Shark Tribe. Okay? They're actually the Quraysh, but Quraysh comes from the Arabic word for shark, and since none of y'all except some visitors speak Arabic, you'll be totally lost if I keep calling them that. So they're just the sharks, uh, the shark tribe, okay? And no jokes about they must have been filled with lawyers either, all right? <laughs> now, the shark tribe actually has control of Mecca. And they have control of this worship center, the Kaaba. And they've set up 360 deities so all the different tribes can come worship their deity. The problem is, um, um, well, let's keep going for a minute. I'll tell you the, the, the next thing that happens. The Kaaba itself, where did it come from? Well, we don't have anybody that tells us where it came from before Muhammad and the Quran. The Quran, you'll find out, is basically the, the revelations that went to Muhammad and some of his companions that have been recorded. It's the Islamic Bible, if you will. 
Okay, but, but uh, uh, before Muhammad and the Quran, we don't have any written history that tells us where the Kaaba came from and this black stone inside. Uh, we just know that it was there and we just know that it had been the center of worship for some time. Muhammad says that it was revealed to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel where the Kaaba came from. Muhammad said that the Kaaba was actually constructed by Abraham of the Old Testament fame. According to the tradition that Muhammad has passed down, um, um, Abraham, you remember he, he's married to Sarah, right? And Sarah can't have kids, but Sarah's been, uh, and Abraham's been promised offspring, right? So Abraham gets Hagar, Sarah's maid, and uh, they, Hagar and Abraham produce a child. The child's name was Ishmael. Okay? We remember this story uh, from the Old Testament. It's in Genesis. Okay? Now, what Muhammad says happened is when Sarah got upset and Muhammad had to send Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness, in fact, he took them down to Mecca. And it was down in Mecca that he left Hagar and Ishmael, left them with just a few dates and a little bit of water. And then Abraham went back north toward the holy land of Israel. All right? Now, after a day or two days, two nights and one day, so Muhammad relates, uh, Hagar's running out of water. And she's real upset and doesn't know what to do. So she's pacing back and forth, crying out to God for help. At which point little Ishmael's playing and his hands miraculously uncover a fountain. And, and he starts talking about the gurgling noise the fountain makes. It's a spring. And upon that spring, in essence, Mecca's built. And that spring is ultimately called the Zamzam Fountain. Off of the, the noise that Ishmael thought the fountain was making. So you've got a fountain there that's got some tradition behind it. You've got, and, and oh, I left this out. Supposedly Abraham came back later and with Ishmael built this Kaaba. And the stone is there. And uh, that's how Muhammad says it got started. We don't know how it got started uh, uh, Muhammad gave, gives that history which was supposedly revealed to him but there's no other history behind it but there was a Kaaba there the Kaaba, uh, history tells us was destroyed during the lifetime of Muhammad by a bad storm At, now it's built out of stone then it was probably built out of wood so this cube was destroyed by a storm and all of the, the shark tribe want to know what should we do because you see, it was this Quraysh or this shark tribe that is in charge of the Kaaba. Now I told you the tribe's at the top and they have clans under them. One of the clans was called, uh, well I'm calling them for our purposes, the water clan. Because what the big tribe did to keep all the clans happy and economically happy is they'd give them all different parts of the worship to control. So the water clan's in charge of handing out the Zamzam water from the Zamzam fountain, selling it in essence. Then there was another one that was in charge of distributing or selling food. Another clan that solves disputes and things like that. So these clans all have an economic interest, as do the shark tribe, in seeing that this worship at the Kaaba continues. Because this brings in tons of money. Right? Does this make economic sense? So, into this water clan is born Muhammad somewhere around 570. Somewhere around 570. Muhammad's born. His dad dies probably right before he's born, if not right after. So he lives with his mom until he's six, and when he's six, Muhammad is six, his mother dies. Muhammad is raised basically as a nomad in caravans. He's raised by an uncle once his mom dies, but he's in that family of a tent that's moving around in the, in the wilderness. One account, actually several accounts, because there's a Christian version of this account as well as a, a, a Muslim version of this account, says that somewhere around the age of 8, 9, or 10, Muhammad in the caravan as it's moving around actually encounters 
a Nestorian monk. Now, if you were here for our church history class where we talked about Nestorius, he was that archbishop of Constantinople who thought that Jesus was, in essence, two beings put into one. He was Jesus the man and God who kind of inhabited Jesus. And Nestorius got kicked out and exiled because he didn't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man united. He kind of had them divided. Any of y'all remember that? Maybe. Okay. Well, you know what happens when these guys got exiled and kicked out of the Roman Empire for heresy? They went and lived places like uh, the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, they can't live in the Roman Empire. So there's a Nestorian monk that actually has a a meeting with... uh, Uh, Muhammad. And it's interesting, we'll see next week as we look at some of Muhammad's beliefs and Islam's belief, um, you know, I just can't help but wonder if the entire history of civilization would have been different if instead of having that early run-in with a Nestorian monk, he'd have had a run-in with an Orthodox Christian who taught him the real nature of Jesus. But uh, we don't know. Muhammad does grow into a very wise man. Um, He's uh, uh, got a reputation for honesty. He's got a reputation for wisdom. And and there is a time in his life where Muhammad himself encounters the Kaaba. Now, you remember the Kaaba I told you got destroyed by a storm? The question for the shark tribe was who's going to rebuild it? How are we going to rebuild it? So they decided they'd take different clans and each clan could be in charge of building one-fourth of it, one wall. But then the big question came, okay, after we rebuild it, which clan gets to put the stone back in? And they were fighting over it. Came to blows over it. So before they just start annihilating each other over who gets to put in the stone, they decide, okay, the next guy to come in the Kaaba, we'll let him do it. And who should walk in the Kaaba next but Muhammad? But to show Muhammad's wisdom, we're able to read about how Muhammad goes about doing it. Muhammad says, well, I guess I could pick up the stone and bring it in, but uh, gee, that's going to elevate my clan above all the other clans, and I don't think that's the right way to do it. So instead, let's get a blanket, everybody get a corner, all the different clans have a representative with a corner, the stone's in the middle of the blanket, and we'll all bring it in together. So they all take it in, Muhammad takes the stone off once it's inside the Kaaba and puts it down. Now, 360 deities being worshipped, polytheism is the big word for that, many gods. But there are a few people who begin to start thinking, gee, we've got Jews among us, we've got some Christians among us, and there is something to be said about the idea, maybe there's just one God. And Muhammad himself starts thinking about this. And by the time he's 40 years old, Muhammad is taking long walks in the wilderness and the mountains thinking about God. And Muhammad goes up to Mount Hira. And in a cave on Mount Hira, we are told that an angel appears to Muhammad. It's the angel Gabriel. And the angel tells Muhammad to recite. And this happens three times before before Muhammad catches on and realizes he's supposed to understand and and remember or dictate uh, uh, or, or read what write what it is that this uh, angel is telling him. And over the next years and years and years, Muhammad does that. And these visions that Muhammad is given from the angel Gabriel become what is the Quran. The Quran is not merely uh, the visions of Muhammad. There are, are also some other writings that are considered holy writings of some companions and stuff. But Muhammad's visions that are written in the Quran are put together by people after his birth who kept track of them. He didn't actually write the book itself. Some of you may be saying the obvious question, why do you spell Quran that way? I've seen it spelled with a Q. Same book. It's just we're taking Arabic letters and turning them into English letters. And you can do it with a Q, you can do it with a K. It's like Muhammad, you'll see his name spelled a number of different ways, M-O or M-U. We've got different languages, so we're just doing it the way it sounds best. And you'll see Quran spelled very different ways. 
So in all of this, Muhammad has this vision. Well, now, the, first, the, the core of the Quran and the core of his vision is that all of these different gods are wrong. There's only one God. God in Arabic is Allah. That means the God, technically. Um, uh, in Hebrew, uh, it would be um, El or Elohim. Uh, even though that's a plural, it's a singular form, or it's used as a singular in the Hebrew. Um, uh, or you could use Yahweh, which God says was his name in the Hebrew uh, Bible, but that's not technically God. Yahweh is, is considered a name. Um, but El, or Elohim, is the Hebrew for God. The Arabic for God is Allah. So what Muhammad is told is, there's only one God. And Muhammad comes back as he's grown into a wise man and he takes these visions and he communicates them to the people. This is why Muhammad is called the messenger of God. Muhammad is called the messenger of God because he took what God had to tell the people and, and he was the receiver and he gave it to the people. I got an email from someone the other day. Uh, uh, who's, who's fairly familiar with uh, uh, Islam. And one of the people that I'd send my lessons to and say, hey, read this, tell me if you see anything where I've messed up or something because I want to make sure we get it right. And he says, you know, have you ever thought about how similar in origin the Muslim faith is to the Mormon faith? The Mormons believe that Joseph Smith was on Hill Cumorah, right outside of Rochester, New York, in Palmyra, New York, in the 1800s, when the angel Moroni comes to him and gives him God's word for the latter-day saints, the saints of these latter days. And that's what we have in the Book of Mormon. And it's caught on like wildfire among certain parts of the world, there are a lot of Mormons. In the same way, you go back 600s, and on this night of a vision, it starts for Muhammad, but the angel Gabriel shows up to Muhammad and said, here, this is the last word. This is what God wants everybody to know. I dare say that there have been other people over this source of time who have claimed to have a direct word from the Lord too. I've had people come to me and tell me a word from the Lord. That God spoke to them, they said, specifically for me. For example, one of the first times this happened was uh, uh, with uh, uh, Will, our son. And I was told three months before he was born that God had specifically told this person to bring me a message that I was going to give birth to, or I wouldn't give birth, that I was going to have given to me through birth in three months, a wonderful daughter. I've never told Will. <clears throat> I don't want any of this gender confusion stuff going on. But, uh, uh, I, you know, there are historically lots of folks who claim to have a divine word from the Lord. And I'm always a bit cynical and I never want to drink the Kool-Aid. Because uh, these people who have a word from the Lord uh, uh, in the Bible were told to test them and to measure them against Scripture. And uh, so that's what uh, uh, I try to do. That's what I would urge you to do, uh, regardless of, of your faith. Measure it against what, uh, uh, what is Scripture. Let me tell you what uh, uh, Muhammad, one of his followers, said. And this is in the early writing. Muhammad's uh, uh, followers said that Muhammad himself was actually prophesied in Scripture. That we can measure this by Scripture because Jesus prophesied that Muhammad would come. And Muhammad would bring the final word from the Lord. And uh, this man points to the Gospel of John. This is kind of wordy. But excuse me, I think we need to look at it for a moment. In the Gospel of John, it says, But I tell you the truth. This is John 16. Jesus talking. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. See, to Islam, they believe the Counselor is Muhammad. 
the counselor, Muhammad, will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send Muhammad to you. When he comes, Muhammad will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men don't believe in me. Righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I, Jesus, have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, Muhammad, the spirit of truth comes, Muhammad will guide you into all truth. Muhammad will speak, not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. See, he's in the mountain. He's hearing this from the angel Gabriel. And Muhammad will tell you what is yet to come. Muhammad will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. And then these Muslim scholars, uh, within a few hundred years of, of Muhammad's death that brought this out and pointed this out to people, go a step further. And they say, if you want to go look at the Greek of this, you will see in the Greek, okay, there, that the word for counselor is the word paraclete. Now that's true. Paraclete is the word for counselor that John and Jesus use there. Then he goes a step further, this, the Muslim scholars, and say the following. Paraclete literally means worthy of praise. Okay, now I took three and a half years of Greek. I never learned that. Charles has a master's in Greek. Did you ever learn that, Charles? No, Charles didn't either. But that's what we're told. And then we're told that Muhammad in Arabic means worthy of praise. So we're told if you go back and actually look at it, that the counselor, the paraclete, worthy of praise, can be translated into Arabic, Muhammad. Muhammad will not come to you unless I go away. Muhammad will not come to you. Now there's the problem. Paraclete doesn't mean worthy of praise. Just doesn't. Paraclete is is uh, uh, so we got to take that link out. Paraclete is two words put together. Para means alongside, like parallel lines run alongside. That's that Greek word para. Para alongside. Clete comes from the the Greek verb kaleo. We have a word comes from that. It's call. Hey, you got to call Leo on the phone. Huh? Call. Call Leo. Paraclete literally means someone who's called to walk alongside with you. So the NIV translates it counselor. Um, it can be translated lawyer. Because a lawyer is someone who's called to go alongside you <laughs> when you're in desperate trouble at court. The Greek word paraclete, paraclete is used for the word lawyer in Greek. Okay? It can also be used as comforter because when you're hurting and you, someone comes alongside you, they're called to come to you because you're hurting and they want to give you comfort. So some Bible translations, you'll never see anybody translate it lawyer, but you will see somebody translate it comforter or counselor. And the Muslim scholars that started this did not know their Greek very well because there is a Greek word very close to paraclete that means worthy of praise, but it's parakletos. Very different. It doesn't start with the P-A-R-A, and it's not kaleo. It's a very different word. They sound a lot alike, and to someone who's not a Greek scholar who's just listening, they may think there's something there, but they're very different words. And so, Christians, we understand the counselor, the paraclete, sorry, that's a little bit off screen, but it's the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's for your good, I'm going away unless I go away. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you, and when the Holy Spirit comes, He'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin because people don't believe in Jesus. Of righteousness because Jesus died and went to the Father. 
to meet righteousness for us. Because we needed someone to die for our sins. And of judgment, because uh, the prince of this world stands condemned, there is a judgment. There's a judgment declared by the fact that Jesus dies. So Jesus says, i got to go away. How's the Holy Spirit going to convict you about sin and righteousness, mine going to the Father, and judgment, the, the prince of this world standing condemned at the cross? The Holy Spirit can't convict you of that if I stay here and don't die and go to the Father. Doesn't that make sense? And so when we read Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost, that's exactly what happens. All of a sudden, the people say, Oh my goodness, we killed Jesus, the Son of God. And He's gone to the Father. And we're under judgment. What shall we do? That's when Peter says, You'll repent. You'll be baptized. And all of your sins will be forgiven. And thousands were added to the church that day the day the Holy Spirit came and started its work of convicting the world. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Christians understand. But the Muslim faith teaches uh, uh, at least some of them otherwise. Now, let's get back because we've got to get through this. So, the Quraysh tribe, the water clan, Muhammad comes upon this idea that there is one God and he starts getting these revelations and he's the messenger of God and for three years he starts teaching his family. But i got to tell you, after he starts teaching his family, word starts getting out to the water clan and to the shark tribe. And do you think it's a real popular word? No. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure out if you've got a culture and a tribe that for centuries has been making its living off of pilgrims coming in to worship 360 different gods that having one renegade guy say, I've gotten a vision, there aren't 360, there's uno, one that it starts kind of hitting everybody else in the old economic pocketbook. And so they plot to kill Muhammad. And Muhammad flees from Mecca and goes up to Medina. While in Medina, the shark tribe continues to try to kill Muhammad, and Muhammad starts taking it out on the shark tribe, starts raiding them. Muhammad gets more converts and more people behind him, and ultimately Muhammad wars successfully over the next decade or so against the shark tribe and finally conquers them. He starts conquering not only them, but he conquers Mecca has an interesting debate with some Christians that come. Sixty Christians come to Muhammad. and say, Because Muhammad, I mean, he's the messenger of God. Muhammad's saying Abraham in the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition was right. Jesus was right. He says, like the Mormons say, we're not discounting anything that truly was written by God in Scripture, though the Muslims will teach that what we have as the Old Testament and the New Testament is all distorted over history and, and it's not accurately the way God first wrote it. But uh, Muhammad says, you know, that's the same God, the God of Abraham. That's my God. That is the one God, the God of Jesus. That is the one God. But Muhammad doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah who died for the sins of people. Ultimately, as we'll see next week, Muhammad teaches, you don't, you don't go to paradise based on whether or not your sins are forgiven. You go to paradise by putting your sins, your good deeds and your bad deeds in a scale and seeing which one outweighs the other. Nothing's forgiven in the sense that the sins have been washed away and you have only good deeds from God to be seen. Nobody's clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the Muslim faith. So 60 Christians and a bishop come to visit Muhammad to debate whether or not Jesus was just a good man and a prophet or whether Jesus was the Son of God. And uh, uh, ultimately, there is an ordeal offered where it's kind of like a showdown at the OK Corral and everybody's going to show up and see who lives to spread their faith the next day. At the ordeal, the Christians say, we're not really here to fight and, and to try and do that. Um, how about if we just pay a tax and we just go on our way and we get to live our faith and believe it? Muhammad says, okay, I'll accept that. So Muhammad takes a tax from the Christians and lets them go on at that point in time. 
But uh, um, that's what happens. Now, briefly, after Muhammad. Let's look at that, and then next week we'll really unfold the beliefs. Muhammad dies in 632. He's made his last pilgrimage. He's kissed the rock uh, uh, inside uh, the Kaaba. And uh, uh, when he dies, the question is, okay, who becomes his successor? Nobody's the messenger of God. There's never going to be another one like him, he taught. But someone's got to like inherit his ability to rule the people of Islam. And so there's kind of a fight over it. Um, the successor, some believe that there are going to be caliphs or, or teacher instructors who are his successors. There were four of them. These ultimately become the Sunni Muslim people. This is 90, well, maybe not 90%, but by and large, most of the Muslim world are Sunni Muslims. And they believe that there were four caliphs, the caliphate period. And these are guys who also uh, were, were kind of uh, in Muhammad's time period. And they wrote down other things that Muhammad had to say and other visions and things they knew about. And so that's a holy writing and you can read that and you can follow that. Meanwhile, there's a son-in-law named Ali. And Ali and people with him said, no, no, no. Muhammad picked me to be his successor. And so it's me and it's people in my household. And these became the Shiite Muslims from the Arabic word Shia, which means a sect. Well, the caliphs basically get to run things, but the Shiites never die off. And that's why in Iran today, 90% of their Muslim population is Shiite. And it's why Iran, you know, Iran and Iraq had the eight-year war. Okay? Very different. The, the, the Shiites don't follow all of the caliph writings as being authoritative. They say, no, 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 no. Because those guys were fake successors. It was Ali that was the proper successor. And so you've got those different branches that branch off almost immediately with the death of Muhammad. And they are still present today and still at odds with each other in some ways today. The caliphs themselves quickly conquer a great deal of the nomadic world. The nomads are easy to conquer. That's their language. That's what they know. They even go up across Gibraltar into Spain. But Islam, within 75 years, really spreads out. Now, these aren't real highly populated areas, all of them. But some of them are. They take Jerusalem and they take uh, Israel and uh, conquer so much. And the conquering spreads all the way over to India. I just didn't have enough crayons to draw it. But the, the Sassanid Empire gets conquered as well. And Islam spreads. Now, at this point in time, as we roll out through the 600s, compare it to uh, the late Roman Empire. It's reduced down really to this area right in here of Turkey and Greece and a little bit more. Islam, we'll talk about next week, the five pillars of Islam. These are the five cores of the Muslim faith. The core number one, and this is what makes you a Muslim, is your profession of faith. You pro profess that there is only one God and that Muhammad was his messenger. And you make that proclamation of faith and uh, you are a Muslim. Uh, you have a prayer ritual of five prayers a day. We'll discuss what those are. There's a charity payment uh, uh, that you make uh, uh, in the Muslim faith as one of the five pillars. There's fasting. You fast during the month of Ramadan from sunrise to sunset. We'll discuss some of that next week. And then uh, if you've got enough money, uh, you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to go to the Kaaba and to see it. And you do this seven trips around it and bow and pray and, and some of that stuff. So we'll talk about the Hajj or the pilgrimage next week as well. Now, I want us to do this, and, and this is a Bible study course, obviously. We're in a Bible study class. And, and I want to put some points for home up here. Um, I believe these points for home with all my heart. If you are a Muslim and you're listening to this on the Internet or you're in here today, uh, 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 I tell you this with love from my heart, but this is what I believe. And, and as I understand your beliefs, I hope you understand mine. I believe that when the Spirit of Truth comes that Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. I believe if you ask God and His Holy Spirit to reveal to you truth and you truly open up your heart to understand it, that He will convict you. That it doesn't matter who you are or what faith you claim, you truly do not have enough merit and good to walk into the presence of the one God Almighty who created heaven and earth and declare, I deserve the right to live with you for eternity because I was good enough.
I truly believe that the Spirit will convict you, no matter how holy you are, that there is a God who is holier, and you have no right to be in His presence, save by His mercy and His grace. And that that is bringing glory to Jesus when you understand that, because Jesus is the way we get that mercy. There is no other door to His mercy than the door that says, there is a price to be paid for your sin, but Jesus will pay it. And I believe that. I also want to put as a point for home what Paul had to say in Corinthians. Paul said that this truth can't be understood by people apart from the Holy Spirit. The way he said it, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, by this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. That is the core of what a Christian believes. That's not just one of five pillars for the Christian. That is the pillar. Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, was rose on the third day. And that death, burial, and resurrection is the life I have when I'm in him by faith. And I am resurrected to a new life a life of eternity with God. That's the gospel, and that's the good news. And the same Paul who wrote that wrote a letter to the Galatian church where he said, if we are even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary or different than that you've already received, let him be condemned. He says, I'll say it a second time just in case you missed it. Even if an angel, if anybody preaches to you some gospel other than what you've received, and he already told us in the last one, what's the gospel? He said it. Whoops, I've lost it. The gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. Brethren, I'll remind you the terms in which you received the gospel, that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And if anybody preaches to you any gospel different than that, even if it's an angel, come down on a mountain and say, I'm Gabriel, here's the word of the Lord. If it's a different gospel, let him be condemned and accursed. Anathema is the Greek. So next week, I would invite you to come back and let me share with you what Muhammad received and let's compare it to our gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is my prayer that these messages will go out and not only help us in our study, but help convict us and others who hear them of your love for us. Father, ultimately, when this comes down, this isn't a my team or a your team or a who's got the better faith or a who's got the better God. You are God. and You have made us and we have all failed you on our own. But you have redeemed any person who will embrace you you have redeemed through the cross of Christ. And that's what we worship you for. And that's how we come to you in prayer. And it is our prayer that your spirit will convict people of that truth throughout this world. In Jesus we pray, amen.